Heavenly Father, we have heard now for several weeks that this final judgment will be severe and eternal. I ask, Lord, that the frequency of this teaching would not dull our hearts to the dread and the magnitude of what will transpire when Christ comes again. I pray, Father, you would humble us this morning. None of us have a right to be here. But you, by your grace, you've, uh, you've called us. And so we want to hear this well. We want to hear this so we don't fall into the trap of being ensnared by the lies. We want to hear this, Father, so we can be faithful to tell others that they have been deceived by the lies. And we want to hear, we want to hear Jesus' warning. We want to be dressed in the garments of righteousness that come from the cross. And we want to be ready, Lord, awake, not caught off guard when you come. I pray, Lord, you'd forgive us for our sleepiness. Even now, Lord, many of us are not spiritually awake, not ready, in danger. Forgive us for that, Father, and use this time, if you are pleased to do so, to wake us up. I mean, really, wake us up. So we leave here with a great assurance of the garment of faith in Christ that we have and a great desire to walk in obedience. We know that you must do this work by your Spirit. We are helpless without you. Show us our dependence, I pray. Make us malleable to your Spirit. And commune with us now, Lord, that we might have great encouragement, great hope, and great joy in the midst of this coming storm. I ask you to do that for us, Father, as a church. You bless the, the brothers and sisters here. And I ask that you do it for your glory. Now be pleased, Father, to use a sinner like me, a dreadful sinner like me, to proclaim this truth and be pleased to equip my brothers and sisters to hear it. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. There's a tendency for us to be dulled when we hear week after week of the judgment. We can't do that. If that happens, then the intent of Revelation is having the opposite effect. It's actually building, it's culminating to this great day of judgment and this great day of salvation. And so if anything, week after week, your ears should be more attuned to what you're hearing and hopefully your lives more aligned to the truths that you've heard. 
In September 1938, France, Great Britain, Italy signed what many have called the Munich Agreement or the Munich Pact. And if you remember your world history, that was a, an agreement they made with Adolf Hitler's Nazi Germany. In that agreement, Adolf Hitler said he had already taken Czechoslovakia and he said that he would no, take no more nations in Northern Europe. And they believed him. In fact, all of France in September of 1938, they rejoiced thinking they had somehow averted a second world war. They believed the lies of Hitler. And instead of preparing for battle, which was imminent, they rested on a false peace. 21 months later, June 22, 1940, France was an occupied country. In less than six weeks, Hitler rolled in and took the entire nation. France made a fatal mistake. The signs of war were everywhere, but she chose instead to listen to the lies of Hitler and take a peace that led to destruction. My beloved, from our passage today, we will see a sinful world believe the lies of Satan and the beast and the false prophet. Not only believing that we can continue in willful, unrepentant sin with no consequences from a holy God, but even believing that in some future battle between God and mankind, that man can, in his collective rebellion, win. Throughout Revelation, God has been showing us in real time that He is judging and that He is saving. And He's been revealing to us, as we will see today, that one day that judgment and that salvation will come to an end. That the story of God actually ends. And we'll look at today, we'll look at bowls 6 and 7, the last two plagues where God's judgment actually does come to an end. No more judgments because no more evil to be judged. And you say, well, wait a minute. That's, we're at the end of 16. We have 17 to 22 to get through. How do we end so early? Well, as we've seen with the, both the seals and the trumpets, it's a retelling, it's a recapitulation of that last day from a different vantage point. And I'm so thankful we have them. We have such a robust understanding of the final days because of the book of Revelation. You say, well, what will we be doing for chapter 17 to 22? Chapter 17 to 22, we're going to get lots and lots of details about how those judgments will play out on those final days and how God will save his people on those final days. They are very exciting chapters. But as with six, the sixth seal, and if you remember the seventh trumpet, bowls six and seven, they bring the story to an end. And so my prayer this morning is simple. I would like for God to be gracious with us and show us how as we approach those last days, the entire world will find itself duped by the lies of Satan, the beast, and the false prophet, following his lies. And so my prayer is that we will understand that, that we will not be deceived by it because those who are deceived will suffer the destruction of Babylon, which we will see today and the weeks going forward. My prayer is that we instead would find ourselves awake. Wide awake. Not deceived. 
Christ is coming at an hour when we do not know. And so we want to be ready. I want to be ready. I want you to be ready. I want to show you three things from the passage. Number one, evil united by Satan. Number two, evil destroyed by God. And number three, evil overcome by Christ. How Satan unites evil in the end. How God destroys all evil in the end. And how Christ overcomes all evil. Not only in his adjudication of it, but in saving his people through it. The theme of the sermon is this, stay awake, the judgment of God is near. That's not hyperbole, my beloved, I'm not trying to scare you. That's what the Bible teaches. We need to stay awake. The day of the Lord is near. It's nearer now than it was yesterday. It's certainly nearer now than it was 100 years ago, and we're seeing that. The times are telling us that. We're supposed to be wise to this. And so I pray we will be a super wise church, and we will believe that that day is drawing near. Point number one, evil united by Satan. So last week, if you remember, bowls one through five were poured out upon the earth. They were poured out upon all those who refused to repent and believe. We saw they were universal. We saw they were cataclysmic in nature, surpassing both the seals and the trumpets. Last week, we saw painful sores. We saw rivers and seas of blood. We saw scorching heat. We saw anguish and suffering from perfect darkness. And we begin this morning with bowl number six. Look at verse 12. Verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Now in the Old Testament, Israel's enemies generally came from the east. The consummate enemy you know, of course, being Babylon, which took the Jews into captivity in 586 B.C. In Revelation, we've come to know Babylon as all nations, all kings, all peoples that continue in their rebellion against God and have for the past 2,000 years against Jesus Christ. Now, similar to the sixth trumpet, if you remember, the sixth trumpet was blown and the Euphrates rivers was also bound up, the water was ceased, and we saw a two-million-man army metaphorically speaking, cross the river and kill one-third of mankind. That was the description in the sixth trumpet. But the sixth bowl, although similar in number, is very, very different. Same river, metaphorically speaking, is dried up, and this pathway, this symbolic pathway, is made for all the kings of the earth. So all the kings means all the nations, which means all the people of the earth crossing this river to do what? to wage war against God Almighty. It is this picture of the consummation of mankind rebelling against his creator. Some commentators rightly noted, and I would read, they call it the unholy exodus. We saw the exodus out of Egypt with Moses crossing the Red Sea. We see the exodus out of sin and death through Jesus Christ and the cross, and this is identified as the unholy exodus. All mankind rebelling together against his creator. Look at verse 13. John said, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Notice the 
the triple repetition there of mouth, mouth, mouth. We're talking about words. We're talking about false teachings. Three unclean spirits like frogs. <laughs> you say, that's just weird. <laughs> like frogs. It's not. It's tied back into the plagues, which we'll, we'll see. So John sees this unholy trinity, which we've already seen, the dragon, which we know to be Satan, the beast, which we know to be all governments and authorities that are working for Satan against God, and then, of course, the false prophet, which is also the second beast, which is the mouthpiece. This is the propaganda machine that makes sure that Satan and the beast stay elevated in the hearts and minds of those who will not worship the living God. Out of their mouths, John sees three unclean spirits like frogs. And you say, well, that's just so weird. It's metaphoric language. It's simply saying this, out of this, out of the beast and out of the dragon and out of the false prophet, you're going to have propaganda, words, teachings, lies, perpetuate the globe. Unclean words used to deceive mankind. Unclean spiritual words spoken to do what? To incite man to rebel against God. To engage in war against our Creator. And just like the frogs that were unleashed on Egypt, if you remember during the second plague, that was the second plague. The first one was blood in the Nile. Now we have the second in the, um, in the pouring out here. The words of the unholy trinity will defile and destroy God's creation. The words of this unholy trinity will defile and destroy God's good creation. Look at verse 14. For they, speaking of these, these three unclean spirits, for they are demonic spirits. So we know, they're, we know they're from Satan. Performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole earth to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Now John, so John tells us specifically they're demonically motivated and that they're going to exercise powers primarily through words to deceive the kings of the world. Now if you know your Old Testament, you think this sounds very familiar I remember in 1 Kings when King Ahab, King Ahab, if you remember King Ahab, he was a really bad king. Remember in Israel, the 10 tribes to the north, 9th century king. Um, he was probably one of the ev- most evil, wicked kings that Israel knew. Um, he was deceived by a lying spirit as well. And he was tricked into going into battle against the Syrians and that did not go so well for him. 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 23 The Lord put a lying spirit, the Lord did this, a lying spirit in the mouth of all these, his prophets. This is what they said to King Ahab. All the prophets prophesied to the king and said, go up to Ramoth-Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it, the Syrian stronghold, into the hand of the king. So Ahab listens to his prophets who received a lying spirit from the Lord. They go up against the Syrians in battle, but instead of being victorious, as their prophets had said, not only did Israel lose, we're told this, in 1 Kings 22, verse 34, a certain man drew his bow, this is in the midst of battle, at random, no such thing, and struck the king of Israel, King Ahab, between the scale armor and his breastplate, killing the king. Killing the king. Here, with the pouring out of bowl number six, all the kings and all the rulers throughout the world will be deceived by these three lying spirits. It won't just be the the prophets lying to Ahab. It'll be the three lying spirits lying to all the kings and all the nations. In other words, the world will be captivated by the lies 
of these unclean spirits. Deceived into thinking what? That collectively they can actually beat God. That together, the world together, that mankind together can gather together and form a human alliance and then engage God in war. Look at verse 16. They assembled them, the spirits assembled mankind, all the kings assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now you go, oh, I know that. Every time I look for a movie, I see some Armageddon something, right? I know it must have to do with the end. It must have to do with destruction. It must have some really bad old actors in it who are going to save the world from destruction, right? Bad theology and bad movies, they, they go well together. <clears throat> Armageddon, it actually is a location. It's the plains of Megiddo. The plains of Megiddo are 55 miles north of the city of Jerusalem. And it is a relatively famous area where lots of battles over the centuries have been raged. You know a couple in particular, Deborah and Barak in the Judges. They defeated the Canaanites at Megiddo. Judges chapter 5. King Josiah, whom we love, King Josiah from the southern kingdom. King Josiah was killed by Necho, the king of Egypt, in the valley of Megiddo. 2 Kings chapter 23. So it's a location that we know battles are going to take place. They have taken place, and that's why John is using this and referring to it. Here, it's a metaphoric picture of the entire world. Every king, every nation, every person that's not following Christ gathered together to engage God Almighty, God Almighty, in war. And just like King Ahab was deceived into thinking he could win, so too will the world be, we will be deceived in thinking that we can, that man can beat God. But in the end, they will only suffer destruction. Now, when we consider the kings and nations and, and power brokers of our day, it's easy to see, I, I think, I want to be humble about this, I think it's relatively easy to see the collective movement of the world today against God. Maybe more so now than in previous times because we have information that's accessible to us now. From around the world, we know what's going on. Um, in just a little bit of research, virtually every nation, it's almost hard to find an exception to the rule, but almost every nation operates today and governs either in contradiction or without recognition of God and the Bible. Virtually every nation contradiction or without recognition of God and the Bible. Most corporations and most businesses today, you know, are not terribly aligned with God or the Bible. In fact, many, especially here in this area, they are actively promoting demonic agendas. We know that from Disney's need to have characters that are representative of the LGBTQ plus community in their films to Apple's recent $100 million racial equity and justice initiative where they said, quote, it is designed to challenge systematic racism and advance racial equity nationwide. That's active, my beloved, not passive. The United Nations, the World Health Organization, the World Bank, the Paris Accord, and we could go on and on about the collective unity that is anti-God, anti-Bible, I would say we are living in a time and place when the world at virtually every level is trending, since we use that term, is trending anti-God 
anti-Christ, anti-Bible. I think we can see that. Friends, this last week, when you have, when you have three nine-year-old children and three Christian workers at a Christian school shot to death in cold blood, and the prevailing dialogue in the popular culture is not the wickedness and sin of murder, but is the need for greater inclusion for those who identify as transgender, or even worse, the implication that a, tradition, a traditional Judeo-Christian teaching that a man is a man and a woman is a woman is somehow hate speech and deserving of such violence, I think it reveals the degree to which the world truly is at war with God, at war with God's people, and at war with God's word. For decades, at least in the Western world, we've listened to these lying spirits. We've had them in our ears for decades. They tell us that God is not real. They tell us that religion and faith, they're crutches for those who are emotionally and intellectually weak. We've heard that absolute freedom, they tell us that absolute freedom to believe whatever you want to believe, to do whatever you want to, want to do, to identify now as whoever you want to identify, male, female, trans, non-binary, is entirely up to you. These spirits tell us that. In other words, Satan has successfully deceived many into believing and living with no fear of God before their eyes marching headlong into the plains of Megiddo together, waging war against the Creator, thinking foolishly what? That we can win, that mankind can win. And you say, as a Christian, well, that's, that's utter tautology, that's foolishness. We, man cannot collectively rebel against God and win. And, and you're right in making that statement, my beloved, but I, I want to press you a little bit Every single time you sin, you're waging war against the Creator. Every time you engage in willful, unrepentant sin, you are taking the Creator on and saying, you cannot and you will not stop me. No consequences. God said the wages of sin are what? Death. God said anyone who makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Hebrews chapter 10, God said, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, that's the gospel of grace, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but what? A fearful expectation of judgment and of the fire, the fury of fire. Every time we sin, we're acting like those who are gathered together at Megiddo to take on the creator of the universe. In the end, during the last days, the kings and the nations will embrace this ancient lie by the father of lies. And they will believe on a global scale, not only that rebellion against God is good and right, but that they will actually win. It's the reason that we, we believe, I believe, that the book of Revelation teaches that as time moves toward that last day, the world will become progressively more evil. So unlike our post-millennial friends who believe that things will be getting better rather than worse, and unlike our dispensational friends who actually believe that the Valley of Megiddo will be filled with the kings of the earth, they wouldn't fit, by the way, but they're going to gather there in that place and take on the living God, 
I believe that what John is seeing, what John is conveying is that this unholy trinity will, century after century, continue to lie to mankind to the point where all kings, all nations, and all peoples, sorry about that, hope that wasn't me, must be a good point, all people, all nations are gathering to rebel against God, thinking that somehow they can win when the consequences we know will be judgment and destruction. So the question is what? Which story is right? Which narrative ends? The way the Bible says it's going to end or the way these three lying spirits say it's going to end? Will that battle of Armageddon between the world and God be one of victory for man or victory for it says God Almighty. That should be a clue. Point number two, the evil that's destroyed by God. If Satan is active in unifying all mankind in evil to rebel against God, then God is active in destroying all evil. Look at verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. It is done. The seventh bowl, like the sixth seal and the seventh trumpet, they represent the end of human history. This is the consummation of the plan of redemption. This is the final judgment. It is done. God's final judgment upon a sinful world. And the scene is violent. Look at verse 18. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth, so great was that earthquake. Now, living here in the Bay Area, you must say, wow, if you were here in 89, and you felt the Loma Prieta, and this is significantly bigger, it's, it's a picture of the manifestation of God as judge, is it not? It's, it's easy to see. Lightning, thunder, earthquakes you think well that sounds like mount sinai that that sounds like the seventh plague when the when the, the hail came in egypt we had lightning and thunder and earthquakes it, it's symbolic for the arrival of the end and god as judge but this earthquake john says is unlike any other this is like the final shaking of god's created order the final movement to judge the living and the dead. So powerful, John tells us. Look at verse 19. So powerful, the great city, that's Babylon, that's the city of man. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And so what John is describing is a picture not like the lying spirits told us. This is not the nations victorious in warring against God. The rulers and the residents and the ways of Babylon winning against the creator of the universe. God simply speaks here. And everything comes undone. He merely utters his word. So the dragon and the beast and the false prophets, words spewed out over and over for centuries. Lying, deceiving, getting man to rebel against God. And God speaks. And everything moves. Literally, everything moves. He shakes violently the foundations of mankind. Power, money, prestige, glory. He deconstructs and he decreates 
the good creation that we've made a mess of. Look at verse, the latter part of verse 19. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of, wine, of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Remember in Revelation 14, he said Babylon will drink every drop down to the dregs of his wrath. And so he's remembering that. He's saying, I will do that. I am doing that. The seventh bowl, God's promised wrath, is finally being exercised. Look at verse 20. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. Now, to be careful here, we're going to hear in, John, in Revelation 21, John talk about the sea being no more. And people have commented, so on the new earth, there's going to be no ocean? There'll be no rivers? No, of course not. It's symbolic language, apocalyptic genre. So this idea of, of, of islands fleeing or mountains disappearing or the sea disappearing, it's all symbolic to reveal the magnitude of what is taking place, that God is judging finally and perfectly. And it's cataclysmic in nature. It's shaking all that we know. And so think about it this way. Everything that man has built his fortune on, all the power, all the glory, all the cities that, that one day will collectively gather and rebel and war against God, he just shakes and they're gone. Divided into three parts, every single nation falls when God shakes his creation. He made it. It belongs to him. It's no big deal for him to shake the earth, my beloved. Last month, those of you who were with us during our time in the prayer furnace, we prayed for those in Turkey and Syria. Because we saw an earthquake that has matched earthquakes in this past century as being utterly catastrophic. 7.8 magnitude, killing over 55,000 people in those two countries died. Hundreds of thousands of structures leveled with the first shaking and over 1.5 million people without a place to live or a place to work. The pictures, if you saw the pictures, they were not only devastating in scope, they were devastating in the degree to which for miles and miles and miles, it was just nothing but destruction. I want you to picture that and make it worldwide. Every city, every nation, every town, every community, that's what this bull was talking about. A shaking so violent that nothing stands. Nothing stands. Utter cataclysmic disintegration and destruction is what Revelation 16 is revealing to us. God's final judgment upon a sinful world. Look at verse 21. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. So the final picture of the final bowl, the seventh bowl being poured out is utterly terrifying. 100 pound pieces of ice, hail, coming out of heaven and falling upon the unrepentant. Now, if you remember your Exodus, our Exodus journey, plague number six, Remember the hail came down upon Egypt, not upon God's people, but upon Egypt, destroying crops, killing people, killing animals. This is going to be on a global scale. 
this idea of a massive destruction. The largest hailstone on record to date, you know how heavy it is? 2.25 pounds. That's the heaviest. 2.25 pounds. But when it's traveling at 100 miles an hour, massive destruction. In 1988, for example, there were two districts in northern India where 246 people died in the midst of a hailstorm. In 1984, in Munich, Germany, they had a hailstorm that lasted 60 minutes. In 60 minutes, 70,000 homes were damaged or destroyed, 200,000 automobiles, 150 aircraft, and 400 people were injured or died with property damages then in 1984 dollars exceeding $2 billion. A 100-pound hailstone would be 33 feet in diameter falling on people falling on the heads of those who do not worship Christ. The imagery is metaphoric, of course, but it's intended to to paint the picture of the extreme devastation and the extreme destruction that will come when God judges on the last day. Suffering and destruction, unparalleled, my beloved. Now, as we saw in bowls four and five, And you would hope that this type of movement would cause people to realize that this judgment is from God and it would compel them to repent and believe. But that's not what we saw in bowl 4 and 5 and that's not what we see in bowl 7. Look at the latter part of verse 21 again. And they, the unrepentant, upon whom the hailstorms are falling, they curse God for the plagues of the hail because the plague was so severe. So they, they know they're being punished. They know they're being punished by God, but instead of experiencing the extreme nature of this, these final judgments, instead of experiencing and crying out to God for what? Have mercy on me, O Lord. Instead of crying out for grace, instead of punishment, they love their sin so much and they hate God so much. What do they do? They recognize they're being punished and they curse his name again. To the very last breath, my beloved, we're on the seventh bowl, we're on the final plague of the seventh bowl, and mankind is still cursing God's name rather than turning, repenting, and being saved. Now John will spend the the remainder of the book of Revelation giving us details about these judgments, these final last day judgments, and these final last day salvation of his people. Lots of great detail. I pray that you will You'll be with us for those studies. But what we see clearly, I would say unmistakably from the bold judgments, is that God's story does not end like the unholy trinity said it's going to end. On that last day, all their lies, all the words that they multiplied without wisdom telling us about the goodness of self-glory, the goodness of self-authentication and self-indulgence, all the lies about unlimited freedom to do whatever we want to do, to worship whoever or whatever we want, that man can do it, can do whatever is right in his own eyes without consequence. All those lies will be exposed on that final day and we're going to learn that the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, their end is the lake of fire. They will be destroyed. So how foolish for us now to listen to their list of lies that they continue to perpetuate. Now in the West, we have a tendency, we, when we think about that final judgment and those who follow the beast and the dragon, we group strangely. 
Even in the Christian church, we, we think, well, who's going to be deceived by that unholy trinity? Who's listening to their lies? Do we know some of them? We, we think that John's talking about certain groups or, or even certain sins. We, we, for example, will say, well, you know what? If you're a member of the KKK or you're a member of the Nazi party or, or you're actively promoting the murder of children through abortion, then you've been deceived. It's, it's those people we must be talking about. Or if you engage in, in certain sins, certain sins we think are really, really bad. Sexual sins, of course, we say drunkenness, abuse, of alcohol or drugs, gossip, these are all ones that we would categorize as subject to the lies of these three spirits. The Western church would argue that those who do such things have been deceived and will also suffer the lake of fire. But I I think that when we do that, when we categorize into little simple groups and little simple sins, we're missing the magnitude of John's vision here. The vision is global. It is global. The bowls are poured out on all who what? Who make a practice of sinning. All. Whether you claim Christ or not, or in church or not, all who make a practice of sinning are of the devil, the dragon. John reveals that every king, every nation, and every person, listen closely, who does not worship and serve the one true living God, God Almighty, through Jesus Christ, every man, woman, and child who continues in willful, unrepentant sin is part of the global movement to wage war against God. I don't have your attention, I can tell. Even in the church even in this place. Those who have not surrendered their lives to God and are truly following Jesus Christ will be subject to the thunder, the lightning, and the shaking. If you were here last week, you'll be subject to the painful boils, the seas and rivers of blood. You'll be subject to the darkness. Not just those who have committed particularly grievous sins and not just those affiliated with particularly grievous groups, but everyone who does not worship God. That means every loving parent, every faithful employee, every good Samaritan, every professing Christian who has not put his or her faith and hope in Jesus Christ alone, but in an idol, is subject to this judgment. Both six and seven are theirs. You see, my beloved, the most grievous lie coming from the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Several lies. They're not political. They're not moral. They're not even religious. You know that. Those are convenient categories to deceive. Under the tent of Satan, all are welcome. He says to all, come in. Capitalist or communist, conservative or liberal, moral or immoral, tolerant, intolerant, woke, unwoke. The only thing that matters when you're under the tent of Satan, the only lie that you absolutely have to believe is that what you do is right in your own eyes and not God's. That's it. The lie that you have to believe is that you do what is right in your eyes, that you have no fear of God before your eyes. If you believe that lie and you live that lie, then Satan says, come on in. 
it doesn't matter what other label you have attached to yourself. You belong on my side, raging against God. This is the defining characteristic of every citizen of Babylon, no matter what they believe and no matter how they live. We conveniently in the West, we categorize people and we categorize sin. And John's laying it plain here. If you do not worship and serve the one true living God, if your life does not align itself with following Christ, then you're on the wrong side. You're waging war against God, and that means both six and seven are yours. That means destruction is yours. You remember the book of Judges? You remember how the book of Judges ends? It's one of the worst endings of any book in the entire Bible. Twenty-one, twenty-five judges in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone what? Do you know it? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone lived as though they were God. No one had a fear of God before their eyes. Judges ends with a snapshot of man's continued rebellion against the true king, Jesus Christ. People doing what is right in their own eyes, striving to be like God. The final judgment, the final judgment that's being described here by John is reserved for those, regardless of what you profess, who continue to live according to what is right in your own eyes. So I ask, my beloved, with all humility, might that be you? Might you sit here today claiming Christ, but truly living your life doing whatever you think is right in your own eyes? Might that be you? I'm not, I'm not asking if you've made a profession of faith or been baptized or are a member of a true church. I'm not asking that. I'm not asking if you're a loving parent or obedient child or faithful employee. I'm not even asking if you read your Bible regularly or pray regularly or never miss an opportunity to serve. I'm asking, I'm asking if you've truly surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. I'm asking if you've placed your life into the hands of the living God, that you've stopped making war, that you said, enough's enough. I cannot win in my sin. He's God Almighty. That you've ceased and you've submitted, and rather than rebelling now, you are following. You're living for God. I'm asking, is Jesus Christ truly your Lord and your Savior? And is that revealed in a life that you are living? Not for yourself, but for Christ and others. You say, well, how do I know if I am living and doing what I think is right in my own eyes? Is it for you? Is it only for you? Or is it for Christ and for others? That's a great litmus test. I'm asking if the choices you make every day, choices about relationships, choices about work, choices about school, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, what you allow to captivate your thoughts. Do you make them because they're right in God's eyes according to what he said in his word or do you make them because they are right in your eyes? You do what you want to do when you want to do it. How you want to do it. That's how the citizens of Babylon live. Their end is destruction. Their end is judgment. If you find yourself, after hearing this, still living by the lies of the culture, 
most of us just live as we were raised to live. And we do, on a daily basis, what we were trained to do. And the default is that, well, that must be right. That's not what the scriptures say. In coming to a saving grace and being empowered by the Holy Spirit, we're supposed to read and know God's word and live in accordance with his truth, not our own. Not what we think is best. If you are, if I, if I have, if God has shaken your chair a little bit, then listen closely. This last point is for you. We've seen one, evil united by Satan. Two, evil destroyed by God. Lastly, let's, let's ha- have a look at how evil is truly overcome. How do we get out of this literal devilish mess? Point number three, evil overcome by Christ. God is so gracious because, I mean, we're, we're on bowls five and six and we're just, we're struggling with the magnitude of the devastation and destruction that's being discussed here. And so what does God do? Jesus, he speaks. And, and we get, I love it, we get in verse 15 this insertion. Hold on. Look at verse 15. Christ is speaking now. He says to the churches, he's saying to you, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. So in the midst of this picture of universal, cataclysmic judgment and destruction, Jesus speaks up, and he wants to grab your attention. He says, behold, that can be look or listen very, very carefully, Jesus, to what I'm about to say. Are you listening very, very carefully? Because he wants you to. He says two things. He tells us, one, one, how he's going to come back. And number two, what we need to do to be ready when he comes. He tells us how he's going to come back and what we need to do to be ready for that day. Behold, he says, I'm coming like what? Like a, say it with me, like a thief. I mean, that, that's, that teaching permeates the New Testament that he's going to come and it's going to be a surprise. It's going to certainly surprise the world, but it's not supposed to surprise the church. Matthew chapter 24, Mark 13, Luke 12, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Peter 3.10. They keep saying it over and over. Listen to this, 2 Peter 3.10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Lots of shaking. Jesus is saying that because my coming will be sudden, because it will be a surprise. If you want to be blessed rather than cursed, if you want to be happy rather than suffering judgment on the day of his return, he says, then be awake and be dressed. Be sober of mind, ready for my return, living what? In obedience, in faith, as sons and daughters of the living God, as those who have been redeemed out of the darkness and into the light as those who have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. It's a call to moral alertness, to live by faith in accordance with God's word. Listen to this. Each day, as though that day were the last day. To be awake, to live by faith, to be morally alert Every single day as if that day were the last day because Jesus said, I'm coming as a thief. Is today that day for you? 
Would you be ready today, my beloved? If before I end preaching, Christ walks through those doors, are you ready? Are you ready? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. You say, but we don't know when Christ is coming. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. And therefore, it is the height of foolishness to live as the world lives. It is the height of foolishness for you to say, he's not coming today, therefore I can live like everybody else. I don't have to walk by faith. I don't have to worry about this sin. Jesus is not talking about sins we stumble into. That slip of the tongue, you know, that flash of anger or frustration you have, and you go, oof. That unexpected bout of anxiety or depression, all of which need to be confessed and turned from. That's not what he's talking about here when he says stay awake. Jesus is talking about willful sins, planned sins, sins you engage in with forethought and you plan to continue to engage in regularly. Sins that would leave you, my beloved, horribly exposed if Christ returned in the process of you sinning. Some are so obvious to us Imagine Jesus, imagine Jesus returning at the moment that you decided it was a good night to get drunk or get stoned. Imagine Jesus returning on that evening when you thought tonight's a good night for pornography or an inappropriate movie. Imagine Christ returning in the middle of you spreading a web of lies and gossiping and slandering. Imagine Christ returning as in your heart you were hating someone or in your heart you were coveting your neighbor's home or maybe in the process of worshiping that favorite team of yours. Imagine him returning in the midst of it. The thought should be horrific to you, not only because you're sinning grievously, willfully, unrepentantly when the judge comes, that's bad, but even more so, you claim Christ and how grievous it is to sin against the one that you say you love most and you believe loves you most. How grievous, my beloved, to be sinning when Christ comes. But there are less obvious sins that I think we in the Western church have taken for granted and truly are asleep to. For example, Jesus clearly commands us to do what? To love one another, a very, very basic command that's given over and over. John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It is an imperative, it is a command. Not simply words or feelings, but love in deed and in truth. Serving one another, bearing one another's burdens, discipling one another, holding each other accountable, encouraging one another daily what? As long as it's called today, says the scriptures. All clear, one another commands the Lord gives to Christians. And many in the West know this. And yet what do we do? We willfully and we persistently disobey. We don't love one another as we ought. Some of us don't love one another at all. How's that going to be when Christ returns? And he says, who are you loving? And you say, no one, Lord. 
How about our Lord's command for us to go and make disciples of all nations? To proclaim the gospel that people who do not know Jesus might know Jesus. Your mission field. To make disciples in your mission field to those who are still at war with God. Most Christians in the Western church, they know the Great Commission. They know we're supposed to go. They know we're supposed to teach. They know we're supposed to make disciples. These are all, again, these are all commands, and yet so many in the Western church willfully and persistently disobey and will be exposed on the day of judgment. You see what? I'm not stealing from my boss. I'm not watching pornography, pastor. Praise God. Are you sharing the gospel? Are you making disciples? Are you serving your brothers and sisters in Christ? If Christ were to return today, would he see your life being lived for others or for yourself? Simple questions. Would he see those you've been sharing the gospel with? Would you be able to point them out? Would he be able to see those you're making disciples out of? Would you be able to say, there they are, Lord? Would he see you actively serving your brothers and sisters in Christ here at Christ Community Church? Would he know the deeds that you're doing? Would he know the words of encouragement that you're bringing? Would he know the rebukes you are making when someone is caught in sin? Would he see that on that day? If not, my beloved, then we will be exposed Jesus will come back as the supreme judge of the universe. I don't think when we say to him, Lord, I wanted to, but I've been so busy. Lord, this is a hard place to do ministry. Lord, uh, I live so far geographically with my brothers and sisters. Lord, I just don't have time. Lord, I'm afraid. Lord, 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 Lord. I think we're going to stop ourselves because they're going to sound so pathetic in the presence of our great king. This is not the blessed way that Jesus teaches here in verse 15. Look at verse 15 again. He said, blessed is the man. It's a beatitude. There are seven beatitudes. It's the third beatitude in the book of Revelation. Blessed are you. Blessed is the man who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may go ab- not go about naked and be seen exposed. So Christ is going to come as Savior and Judge. He's going to save those who have the garment of faith, the garment of righteousness on and he's going to judge all those who are naked and exposed. You say, oh, I I think I get that metaphor. Not physically, but spiritually. Naked and exposed. Adam and Eve got it. Remember Adam and Eve, after they had sinned against God, they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then God shows up in the cool of the day, and he says, Adam, where are you? Adam said this, Genesis 3.10, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now that's fascinating. Prior to Adam and Eve falling in Genesis chapter two, God identified them, he described them as being naked and what? And not ashamed. But now they're sinful. Now they're fallen. Now they're at war with God. They're wearing, they're bearing their sin, naked and ashamed and deserving of what? Deserving of judgment. But God, even in Genesis chapter three, you talk about the redemptive plan starting very early. 
In Genesis chapter 3, God does not leave Adam and Eve in their naked, shameful condition. Genesis 3.21, listen. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. The very beginning of the story, God was planning on redeeming. He was planning on overcoming our nakedness and our shame. It was God God in the garden who sacrificed the first animal, spilled the first blood, broke the first body so that Adam and Eve's nakedness could be covered, their shame could be covered by the sacrifice of this animal. 2,000 years ago, my beloved, when the fullness of time had come, it was God at Calvary who sacrificed his only son, spilling his blood and breaking his body so that our nakedness and our shame can be covered by God. At Calvary, God's beloved son, as you know, he was stripped naked before he was nailed to the cross. The sinless son of God was exposed to all the nakedness and all the shame that we justly deserved for our rebellion and our warring against our Creator. And like the animal sacrifice in Genesis 3, Jesus became our covering. His blood spilled, His body broken, so that all those listen, all those saved by grace through faith in Him could have the covering of righteousness. Our filthy garments of sin were placed upon his beautiful, sinless body and his perfect righteousness was placed upon us. That becomes our garment. His righteousness, his holiness. This, my beloved, is the garment that you must keep on today and every single day. If you want to be blessed on that day when Jesus comes, you got to have that garment. It is the garment of faith. It is the garment of you putting all your hope and all your trust in a crucified, risen Savior. You see, Jesus on that cross, when he said, it is done, it is finished, it meant the punishment was finished for you. It meant that receiving that covering of faith by grace, that the judgment that you fully deserved for your nakedness and your shame, you would not get. Christ bore it for you. Payment in full, your debt cleared. No longer naked, no longer shameful if you put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. No longer naked, no longer shameful, no longer subject to the judgment of God, no thunder for you, no lightning for you, no earthquake for you, no 100-pound hail on your head. If you have faith in Christ, Instead, my beloved, you have been set free from the power of sin and death. You've been set free from the lies of these three spirits that spew out nonsense. You've been set free and equipped in the Holy Spirit to love God, to walk in faith, and to what? To be obedient. To know his word and live according to his word. If you're in Christ, that is you. Free to live by faith And the Son of God who what? Who loves you and gave himself up for you. Free to love and serve and sacrifice for one another. Because that's right in God's eyes. That's how he wants us to live. Spiritually awake and ready for his second coming. My beloved John's vision, I believe, is 
is crystal clear. We know how the story ends. Are you ready? Are you dressed and ready to go? God will destroy all evil. And you as well, unless you are in Christ. Jesus Christ is our only hope. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this clarity. We thank you for telling us in advance how the story ends and how horrible it will be for all those who remain at war with you. I pray, Father, if there's anyone here in this room, regardless of their profession of faith, regardless of a baptism, regardless of how much they know their Bible, if there's anyone here in this room who has not put their faith and trust in Christ to save, then do that now. Transform lives now, Father. Make them awake, indwell them by the Holy Spirit, cause them to repent, cause them to believe, and cause them to follow Jesus. And for those of us who do know you through your Son, I pray you would keep us awake. Father, don't allow us to take off that garment of faith. Do not allow us to take off that garment of righteousness and sin. Today could be the day that our Lord returns. Make us wise, Father, as a church. Father, I pray for grace upon us, for the desire and the strength to live in light of these magnificent truths. Equip us as a church, Lord, to live each and every day as though it is the day that Christ is returning. What a beautiful testimony we will be as his bride. I ask that you do that for us and for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.